What we're going to look at today is the fact that Jesus is a good king. Specifically, his goodness being seen in how he suffers. And it's funny, isn't it, putting those two things together, suffering and goodness. How will we put those two things together? We put those two things together because Jesus suffers for us. But he doesn't just suffer for us, he suffers with us. As we're going to see tonight, and we're going to look at basically from verse 33 of John 18 all the way through verse 30 of John 19. And what we're going to see tonight, I hope, is that we're going to be reminded of how Jesus suffered for us and why that speaks of his goodness. Because we all know the facts. Most of us here, we know the facts, right? We know the details or the facts of the gospel. Jesus is God. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. I get to go to heaven. Yay. And that is great news. It's the greatest news that ever was. But we can easily forget about the fact that he is that good, especially when we're in the midst of suffering. So we want to be reminded tonight about how Jesus enters into our suffering with us. So looking at verse 33 of John 18, it says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium, again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now remember, Jesus has already been arrested by this time. He's already been slapped around by the high priest. He's already been condemned by the Jewish high priests. So Jesus answers him in verse 34, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you uh, concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Now, Pilate is asking Jesus these questions because he's trying to see if Jesus is guilty of something politically. If Jesus was to say, yes, I'm a king, he would think, okay, you're some sort of insurrectionist. You're trying to overthrow the Roman government. We're going to see in a minute there was somebody in the vicinity who had trying to do just that. And so if that was the case, then maybe the Jews had a, a reason for him to, to want him to die, to want him to, to be arrested and killed. And so he's asking this question, and, but it's interesting that here's Jesus. He's already been slapped around quite a bit. He's already had chunks of, uh, of his beard plucked out. So he's already in some pain. He's already quite fatigued. He's already prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the point of sweating great drops of blood. He's already had a night full of agony, and yet... When he's on trial with Pontius Pilate, what does he say? So why are you asking me this, Pilate? He's thinking about where Pilate's heart might be at. Where are you at, Pilate? Is this, is this just a political thing, or do you want to know more? In other words, as he's suffering here, he's doing so as God's chosen king. He's not denying he's a king. We'll see that in a minute. But he's doing this as God's chosen king. In other words, he's suffering purposefully. He's doing this on purpose. He, he, even in the midst of agony, he's thinking, how can I reach this person? And so Jesus answers him in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here, he says. Now it's interesting because in saying this, he's not saying his kingdom wouldn't be in the world. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying his kingdom isn't of this world. It's not from this world. It didn't originate from here. He wants Pilate to see something. He wants him to understand what it is he's doing. Therefore, Pilate says to him, okay, are you a king then? 
And so Jesus says, verse 37, you rightly say that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears my voice, or everyone who's of the truth, hears my voice. Pilate says to him, well, what is truth? Now, when Pilate says this, people are divided about what he might mean, but he's definitely kind of dismissing him. He kind of seems to be assuming there's no answer to that question, what is truth? Which is ironic, isn't it? Because here's Pilate standing right before truth incarnated, truth personified, and yet he doesn't even recognize truth. But what's interesting is Jesus is doing this because, again, he's suffering purposely. He wants to make the truth known. He wants to reveal himself even to Pilate as the truth. He's suffering on, on purpose. What's the truth he wants him to know? Well, the Bible says in John chapter 3, in fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verse verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, I can imagine if I was in Jesus' shoes, I would be saying, you know, yeah, I'm a king and you're busted because you're compliant with this whole thing. But he's not wanting to condemn Pilate. He's wanting to save him. He suffers purposefully. So then we, we pick it up in, in the second part of verse, 20, uh, verse 38. And it says, And when he had said this, when Pilate had said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now this is the first of three times that he says this. He says it here in verse uh, 38. He's going to say it again in chapter 19, verse 6. And then again in chapter 19, verse 7. I find no fault in him. In other words, he's saying plainly, this person I consider to be legally innocent. In fact, this is what brings us to the second thing. Jesus suffers unjustly. It's important that we recognize this. This is one of the things that the Bible uh, makes really clear, the gospel accounts make really clear, that Jesus is an innocent victim. He should not be the one who's going to be arrested and crucified. Pilate is admitting he's innocent. Does so three times. I declare this guy innocent. But what happens? Verse 39. But Pilate says to the crowd, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now the other gospel accounts tell us that Barabbas was also uh, a rebel or an insurrectionist. And he was also a murderer. So all those things together basically mean he was probably doing the thing that they were afraid that Jesus was doing. He was trying to usurp the Roman government. He he was kind of engaging in guerrilla warfare. So he's someone that has been legally declared guilty. So this is the thing we have. We have Jesus who's dying unjustly as one who's legally declared innocent instead of one who's legally declared guilty. This is exactly what Scripture says about Jesus for all of us, his death for all of us. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us, that he might bring us to Christ or bring us to God. So then we pick it up in verse, ni- or verse 1 of chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and he scourged him. This is probably a, the lighter scourging that would have still been horribly painful. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. 
And Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Now really what Pilate's saying there, he's like saying, Okay, really? Look at this guy. Have pity on this guy. Do you think he's any threat whatsoever? When he says, Behold the man, that's what he's trying to say. Would you look at how pathetic this guy is? And you can imagine seeing Jesus, you know, with the blood trickling down his face because of the crown of thorns and this, this robe around him being mocked by soldiers. And they're thinking, this guy's, come on, you don't have to be afraid of him. This brings up the other way he suffered. He'd suffered willingly. He was willing to be mocked. He's willing to be beaten. Do you realize, guys, this is why so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are willing to be mocked and beaten. Because Jesus was. They're willing to receive the same kind of suffering that he received. It's why we read in the book of Acts that Peter and John, after they're arrested and and beaten with many stripes, that they leave rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer in the same way Jesus had. Suffered for his name. Therefore, verse 6, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Keep that in mind for later on. Therefore, when Pilate heard that, that saying, he was more the afraid. And he went into the praetorium and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Remember, Pilate was afraid because his wife, through the Gospels accounts, tells his wife had had this dream and warned him. And so Pilate's wondering, who is this guy? And it wouldn't be that rare for someone to be sort of superstitious of a, of a deified man. So they're wondering, who is this guy? Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And what does Jesus say? You, Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. He suffered willingly in the sense that he was willing to submit himself to God's plan. Remember, as we said earlier, I said earlier, he was before this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been praying with his disciples to the point of sweating great drops of blood. And He's in this place, and what does he pray three times? God, not my will, but your will be done. Do you remember what Gethsemane means? It means olive press. It's the place where they crush olives so the oil can be released. What's oil a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. He was crushed so the Spirit of God could be released. He was willing to go through this. In fact, Jesus would say earlier in John chapter 10, He would say this to those who were listening to him um, about his death. He said, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also take it up again. He sacrificed himself. He suffered willingly. This is important to remember because in the book of Acts, we see when they preached, they would Peter would preach and he would say to the Jews that listened to him in the beginning, he would say, you whom delivered him up to be crucified, him the Father raised up according to his perfect plan. 
You see, just because the Jews chose to betray him and, and, and deliver him to the Romans, just because the Romans chose to go ahead and crucify him, doesn't mean he wasn't willing to be so in that position. He could have stopped it any time he wanted to. But he suffered willingly. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate heard when, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus uh, out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And that was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried, away. they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified then they took Jesus and led him away. Probably at that point is when they, cruised, when they scourged him again more violently. Now here's what's interesting. What we see here is Jesus suffering humbly. Because even though John doesn't describe what crucifixion is, because everyone who would have read this in the first century would have known what crucifixion is, crucifixion was the most humiliating way a person could be killed. It was meant to not just cause excruciating pain, it was meant to completely humiliate the person being crucified. They were crucified naked, they were crucified publicly, they were crucified in a place where everyone who would walk into the city would see their bodies hanging there. They were meant to be completely humiliated. This is how Jesus dies. And it says in verse 17, he bearing his cross, probably this is the top bar, he's wearing, wearing, carrying it as he walks. He went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now it's not an accident that Jesus was crucified between two common thieves. One, again, we know the other gospel stories, right? They both slandered at Jesus and, and spoke blasphemy towards him until one said, wait a second, what are we doing? This man's different. And says to Jesus, you know, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And of course, Jesus says those famous words, today you'll be with me in paradise. But there's something else here that John, I think, wants us to see. And that is, Jesus is here in this place where he's among the most lowest members of society. In his life, he hung out with people who were rejected by the religious elite. In his death, he dies with those who are rejected by the religious elite. Jesus is in the center. I love the fact that the New King James phrases like that too, Jesus in the center, because it just reminds me of a spiritual reality. That it's Jesus who, who came to be among us. He, he came to be, took a, the low position as a man, and he came to be that man so he could relate to us. He suffered humbly. But also Jesus in the center. He's between us and God. He's why we can know God and approach God and know we're loved by God and love God in return because he's in the center. Now it says that Pilate wrote in verse 19 a title and he put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written, notice, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. 
Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answers, What I have written, I have written. Now remember, when Jesus is crucified, he's crucified on the road so everyone publicly can walk by. And these three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, would have been the three languages that covered everybody who walked into Jerusalem. There wouldn't have been anybody who didn't walk into Jerusalem who didn't know at least one of those three languages. So here's what's, what's happening. He's being crucified in a way, he's suffering in a way in which all people would understand why he suffered. Do you get this? They would hear, in a sense, the, initiation, the, the, the foundation of the gospel, that Jesus is king. They would know this as they walked into town, as they saw him suffering. Now, here's what Scripture says. I, I'm going to read to you from Philippians chapter 2, but I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation because it's a fresh way to hear this. Look what he says. Look, at what, look, look how Paul writes this. He says, though Jesus Christ was God, he did not think himself, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Paul is saying clearly, listen, Jesus was the picture of humility. And I want you to understand something, okay? When he's being humiliated by the Romans, humiliated by the Jews, he is being so because he's humble. Not because he's being made humble, but because he is humble. He suffered humbly for us. Jesus knows what it's like to be humiliated. But for him, he was willing to do it. Because it showed us something about God. Now I want you to skip down to verse 25. It says, Now there stood by the cross Jesus, uh, the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, uh, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, as as amazing as it is that these guys are here, there's his mother and these other women that were involved, they were there with with Jesus when he's being crucified. As amazing as that is, as amazing as it is that John, the beloved disciple, is there as well. Don't forget who's not there. Who's not there? His brothers. John chapter 7 says clearly his brothers did not believe in him. In fact, they mocked him in John chapter 7. They said, go up to the feast, show yourself if you're the Messiah. They mocked him. You know who else isn't there? The other disciples. You know why? Because Matthew's gospel tells us plainly that uh, all the disciples forsook him and fled. See, here's what's happening to Jesus. He's suffering relationally. He suffered relationally. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by those who are close to you. Jesus knows what it's like to be doubted by those who should know better. It's interesting that even in the midst of that, he still makes sure that his mother is taken care of by John, the beloved disciple. I can't help but wonder if this is is one of the things that kind of made his brothers believe. 
Maybe they had kind of given up on mom. Okay, we know that big brother Jesus is wacky, and now mom is kind of backing up his story, so we don't know, man. They're all mad. But then there's Jesus being crucified, and they hear that cousin John, and if you can see by the text, he is cousin John. Cousin John is taking care of our mom. And then when he's resurrected, they think, wow, he was the Messiah. He suffered relationally. Now, verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things that were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, <clears throat> it's not a direct quote. It's an allusion to probably Psalm 22, verse 15, where it describes the, the psalmist is describing this pain of, of thirst, but it didn't say the words, I thirst. It's probably that. But it says a vessel of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and they put it on hyssop and they put it to his mouth. Now don't confuse this with earlier when they tried to give him the wine that was uh, mingled with myrrh. The wine mingled with myrrh was uh, a way kind of to relieve the pain. Jesus refused that. This is different. This is Jesus wetting his lips because he has something that he's about to say. But the thing that I really want to draw your attention to is that he's doing this that the scripture might be fulfilled. And we say a similar thing in verse 23. It says that the soldiers, uh, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they made four parts, uh, to each soldier a part and also the tunic. But the tunic was, was uh, without a seam, woven from top in one piece. In other words, it was valuable. So they said among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it uh, with those uh, whose it shall be. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And what's happening here? We're seeing that Jesus suffered prophetically. As we'll see in a minute, Jesus's, the, the, the suffering of the Messiah was something the scripture said would happen. He suffered prophetically. In fact, earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 5, Jesus made it clear to these people, these religious leaders who should have known better from Scripture. He said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they, these are which testify of me. All of Scripture, not just the future prophetic aspects of Scripture, all of Scripture testifies of Jesus. All of it. He suffered prophetically. And so we, we see he suffers purposely, he suffered unjustly, he suffered willingly, humbly, relationally, prophetically, and lastly, he suffered sufficiently. In verse 30 it says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It's one word in the Greek language, to telestai. It's the word that they would they would often stamp onto cargo when the taxes or the customs have been paid to Telestai, boom, paid in full. It was the word that was used when someone had been considered a champion or they had finished their race. To Telestai, I've finished, I've won. To Telestai. Interesting. If Jesus is saying this, and this is one of the reasons why we know he didn't want to take the wine mingled with myrrh. He didn't want to sort of lose thought. He didn't want to be, be his, have his brain uh, be unaware. He wanted to have full control of his thoughts. 
when he was saying what he wanted to say on the cross. But we also see him, in him sipping or at least wetting his mouth with this wine. He's prepared to say something loudly. It is finished. So that all that would hear would know it's been paid in full. Listen. This is, this is a text of Scripture, Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus was crucified. Here's what it says about the Messiah. It says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on Him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Do you realize that when we see what happens in this text, that His disciples fled with Him, we are like His disciples. Our natural default position is to push Jesus away. We despise and reject Him, naturally speaking. Yet, Isaiah 53 goes on to say, Yet it was our weaknesses He carried. It was our sorrows that weighed Him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. People can look at Jesus and go, oh man, innocent victim, poor Jesus. But we saw he died willingly. He chose to suffer. And he chose to suffer for us. Isaiah goes on, but he was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Now, none of us here are probably insurrectionists, at least I hope not. But all of us are like Barabbas. We're the rebellious ones. We're the bitter ones. We're the violent ones, at least in our hearts. We're the ones who deserve to be crucified, yet we're set free. And he's crucified instead. Isaiah goes on, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Do you see that? The Lord laid on him. The other Gospels tell us that when Jesus is on the cross, before he says the words, it is finished, there's three hours of darkness. A picture, we believe, of God pouring out his wrath on Jesus. During that time is when Jesus would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both calling those Jews who heard him to turn to Psalm 22, because they wouldn't have had Psalm 22 in their Bibles, they would just have memorized the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also testifying to a reality that was taking place, this great exchange. Jesus died sufficiently. See, we have this good king. Jesus, who is the Christ, God's chosen king, the one that that God has chosen to rule over our lives. The one who calls us to submit ourselves to him. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He knows what it's like to do that. He knows the anxiety that can come sometimes when we say, okay, not my will, but yours be done. Knowing that what 
awaits us is pain and difficulty. He knows how hard it is to be in this place. But this king also knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like not just to worry about suffering, but to actually enter into it. He knows what it's like, and he walks with us in our suffering. And we can have assurance that he walks with us, not because we get it right, like we're learning to suffer the right way, and therefore we're, we're connected to Jesus the right way. No, he does so because he's, he's made a way for us to be related to him. He's made a way for us to be his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, the scripture says. He's made a way because his sacrifice, his suffering was sufficient. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, you know what, God, why am I suffering? I'll get it. Why would you ever call me to suffer? I don't understand. And we forget, well, who do we serve? Who do we follow? But a suffering king, a king who suffered. Or sometimes we think, oh, okay, God, I'm suffering, but I'm bad. I deserve it. I I need to suffer. As if somehow our suffering is going to atone for our sins. But we forget Jesus' suffering is sufficient. It's sufficient. I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come back up. I'm going to ask the brothers and sisters who are going to pass out communion to get ready to do that. Not sure who's going to do that, but I'm sure some people will volunteer to do that. Some ushers will do that. Please, ushers. (laughs) And in a minute, we're going to pass out the elements of communion, the, the bit of cracker, the bit of grape juice, And the cracker is meant to remind us that it was his body that was broken so that we could be a body. One body, the scripture says. It was his blood that was spilled so that we could be his children. Our sins could be washed away. So it's no longer us thinking we have to atone for our sins. It's no longer us wondering if we can approach this God. We're going to pass out these elements and we're going to hold on to our our portions together. And it's important for us to remember that these things just represent this amazingly holy and good day, Good Friday, the day Christ was crucified for us. It's, It's important for us to do this so that when we are when we eat this cracker and we drink this juice, we're remembering and we're proclaiming the Lord's death. That is the sufficiency of the Lord's death. That is that that Lord's death is for us. That it was done on purpose. That it was done willingly. That it was done humbly. It was all done for us. That we are remembering that until we're proclaiming that until he comes back again. And here's the thing that we want to remember. The Bible says plainly in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you see that? Christ knew no sin. Scriptures are clear about that. He was a perfect sacrifice. But he became sin for us 
So when God is judging, when he's pouring out his wrath, his anger is pointed at his own son because he has made his son sin. So sin can be taken care of, can be washed away. And not just that, but listen, that we might become the very righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of John or Sam or Nicola, the righteousness of God. That we are as right with God, that we are as seen as justified with God as his own dear son. That's the great exchange. We are remembering through communion the sufferings of Christ and the righteousness he gives to us. This is why it's called the Eucharist, the giving of thanks. We're not just saying, thank you God that you had such a very bad day 2,000 years ago and somehow we say it's good. No, we're saying, thank you God that in sending Christ, I can be declared innocent, righteous, the very righteousness of God. That's what we're remembering.